Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And this week, we're giving you a sneak preview of a day in the life of global trade, an exceptional project we pulled together for a special issue of Bloomberg Markets magazine devoted to trade. I also discussed the long-term future of globalisation with the economist and author Stephen King. But first, we felt we should spend a few minutes on the big story of the week, which is the global march of the coronavirus. At times like this, markets get nervous, epidemiologists get a lot of calls from the media, and economists attempt to estimate what the impact on the global economy will be, usually without very much to go on. Tyler Cowan is a professor of economics at George Mason University and co-author of the very popular Marginal Revolution blog. He's also a regular columnist for Bloomberg. I don't think he's an epidemiologist in his spare time, but he has written some wise columns on the coronavirus since the outbreak first hit the news. He's on the line now. Tyler, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, you haven't been coming up with guesstimates for the impact, economic impact of the virus, but you've had something to say about the kinds of institutions and cooperation you need to respond to these kind of outbreaks. I guess one question is, do you think America's health system is, is up to the task of dealing with this if it continues to spread? Well, if any pandemic comes along, it's very important how good is your local public health infrastructure. Do your emergency rooms have surge capacity? Do people trust the messages they're receiving from public health authorities rather than overreacting? Uh, do you have the ability over longer stretches of time to gear up vaccine production once you have a vaccine? So the best way to approach remedying the costs of a pandemic is not to quarantine everyone, which is usually not going to work, but to think about response and trust within your system and just the robust decentralized properties of how you're going to deal with all of the various small issues. And if you just were just thinking domestically here, I mean, there's obviously there's a big international anger, but within America, you know, we tend to think that um, faith in government institutions, investment in um, public infrastructure has got worse over the last few years. Uh, is that something that we'll then sort of feel feel particularly the impact of with the spread of this kind of virus? Or do you think actually we're still in a fairly good shape? Well, we did some pandemic planning around 2006 when there was a possibility that avian flu would spread. And it, it turns out that was not a major emergency. Uh, but in some ways, we're in a better position than we were, uh, say, 20 years ago. Keep in mind, a lot of the planning is not just public sector, it's also private employers. So say, for instance, that schools are shut down and children uh, stay at home. A lot of parents can't get to work. Are there robust workforce plans in place, for instance? And you asked before, you know, how ready are we for this? No one is ever quite ready for a major pandemic if that turns out to be the case. And again, we still don't know. But I think there's a lot of improvisation along the way. And I'm cautiously optimistic that the United States, at least, is in a better position than many other countries. Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, in China, obviously, there is, there's often been concern, and we, had, we saw it with SARS, that local officials don't have the right incentives to get ahead of a, of a crisis and certainly to, to be open about something when it's first starting. It seems to have been a bit more transparent in response to this virus but the levels of, of social trust and the sort of local institutions are not is not necessarily as high as it is in the U.S. Where do you think China stands on that? Well, they're doing 
some things quite effectively at the national level. They're trying to be transparent. You've probably read the stories about them trying to erect a hospital in six days in Wuhan. And that sounds good, but they don't have the doctors to staff the hospital. Healthcare has been one of China's weakest points for a long time. So I think mostly they're very badly prepared compared to how well they do certain other things, like, say, putting up buildings quickly or, or doing high-speed rail. If I think from an economic standpoint, you know, the state of international economic cooperation, it feels like it's worse than it was. I mean, the levels of kind of mutual trust between leaders is worse than it was a few years ago. How's the international health cooperation? I mean, is that something, obviously, it's very important at times like this for countries to work together. I think a lot of the recent international problems will go away in light of an emergency if this turns out to be one. In some ways, it could bring the United States and China closer together again. So uh, within the United States, pandemics typically have been bipartisan issues. So there's so much talk about how we're polarized. But the response so far in this country has been quite transparent and not a political issue per se. I'm heartened by your optimism. I mean, it's qualified optimism. There's (laughs) some chance, you know, quite a few more people will die. We don't know what that chance is. And much of that we can't stop no matter what we do. And, of course, we should remember how many, many people die of influenza every every year um, and become part of our system. I mean, I guess finally, just we when we again, when we worry about maybe the changes that have happened in the U.S. and other places in the last few years, you know, social media we now worry, you know, takes a particular political trend and then makes it worse, tends to magnify it. Could it also magnify the downsides of this epidemic, for example, you know, by spreading fear, misinformation? I mean, is that something we could worry about? Uh, We should worry about it, but I am hopeful so far that social media will do more good than harm. And it uh, does give people accurate information if you know where to find it. I would just suggest to listeners not to jump at scare stories, not to panic. Make sure anything you're reading or passing along actually is true. If there's anything that makes a response to a public health problem worse, it is false information and panic. And the same thing applies to the many remedies that are already uh, coming online as well. Tyler Cowan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now let's turn to that special project I mentioned. For once, we wanted to get past those breathless headlines about trade wars and trade flows to see the nuts and bolts of the global trading system up close. So on a single day, December 4th last year, reporters around the world went to a particular place in the global trading system to watch, listen and learn. We went to the banks of the Mississippi and a French vineyard in the Rhone Valley, the Nigeria-Benin border and the Panama Canal, the West Bank, a shopping mall in downtown Tokyo, and a favourite meeting point for Chinese tourists in Sydney Harbour, all on the same day. And we learned a lot. More than I can describe right now, but here's a taste from our chief Asian economy reporter, Ender Curran, in Hong Kong. That noise you hear is the sound of global commerce in action. The port of Hong Kong is one of the biggest shipping junctions in the world. On this morning in December, it's a buzz as hundreds of employees pour in for their shift. Cranes load and unload containers onto trucks and ships. Overall, 
There are 6,000 direct employees at the port and an estimated 180,000 in related roads. On this day, there are few obvious signs of the trade war between the US and China. It might look like business as usual, but Hong Kong has been caught in the middle of trade and political tensions between the world's two largest economies. And that is not all. Volumes in Hong Kong have been on the decline for the last several years, so it's hard to pinpoint everything on the trade war. There are other issues here. Peter Levesque is the CEO of Modern Terminals, one of the companies that runs Hong Kong's port. When I talked with him, he was about to return to the US in a different role. But his 25 years in Asia makes his perspective valuable. Levesque was noting that not all of the decline in volumes reflects the barrage of higher tariffs. There's also stiffer rivalry from neighbours in Asia, slowing global demand, as well as the rise of Chinese and regional competition. The uncertainty piece is, is something that businesses don't really like to deal with. And, and you want to do a three and a five year strategic plan. We're trying to do you know, plans that last one or two weeks, depending on you know, which tweet comes out. And it's very difficult to try to uh, get a handle uh, on, on you know, what to expect. And, and what we're trying to do is just deal with what's in our control. While Hong Kong may no longer be the merchandise trade conduit for China that it once was, it remains a vital source of capital and know-how. Trading and logistics accounted for around 21% of the territory's economy in 2018. On the port's quayside, I climbed a crane to watch the operators doing their jobs, perched in their cockpits about 12 storeys off the ground. They are pulling and prodding levers to manoeuvre containers onto and off of the ships. The guys in the cranes, they, they can see for themselves whether there's a ship underneath or not. And uh, the fewer ships, you know, they certainly talk about that. They know what the state of the market is. Of course, Hong Kong's economic relationship with China is about more than just the shipment of goods. Months of political protests have raised questions about the degree of autonomy that Hong Kong is supposed to have and what the political relationship with Beijing will be like in coming years. Ben Bland is a research fellow with the Lowy Institute, a think tank in Australia. He's also a former journalist in China. I asked him why Hong Kong still retains a key economic role for China. Where it is really important is as a connector for the financial markets between China and the rest of the world. And particularly given that we've seen these efforts, initial efforts to open up China's capital account, to open up the RMB, kind of stall in the last five years. RMB stands for renminbi, the name of China's currency. The nation has been trying to promote the use of it globally, but the currency remains under tighter control than the US dollar. Hong Kong really retains its importance as that key valve, if you like, for flows of capital both out of and into mainland China. I also recently visited the Hong Kong Toy and Baby Fair, the world's second largest show of its kind. Hong Kong continues to be a vital cog in that industry even though the territory has long ceased to be 
the world's toy factory. Much of the production has merely shifted next door to the province of Guangdong in mainland China, while Hong Kong remains the region's banking capital. The message from organizers was upbeat. Trade officials expect the recent Phase 1 accord to boost export of toys from Hong Kong. And they say the holiday shopping season was good. But you can still sense the competition the port is facing. Shipping cost from Shenzhen is cheaper than Hong Kong. Ken Kwok is the chief operating officer of 3.0, a Hong Kong-based company that specializes in action figures from popular shows such as Transformers and Game of Thrones. Like so many, it makes its goods in mainland China. Now, instead of Hong Kong, more of his customers are choosing to have their goods shipped out of Shenzhen, which is just across the border in the mainland. And secondary is because most of the our manufacturer ship out their products in China so that they, uh, they can consolidate the goods in China's warehouse. And China warehouse, of course, is lower price than Hong Kong. In one way, the toy makers at the trade show have dodged a bullet. The recent deal took tariffs on toys off the table. But the exhibitors are still aware of the risk that tariffs may come back later, and they are planning accordingly. That means considering where to move their supply chains. I dropped by the booth of Good Baby International, a maker of strollers, car seats and other baby products. Amy Gu, the company's general manager for Asia-Pacific, says the company has manufacturing in both China and the US. But she has been pitched by officials from Saudi Arabia. The company has also looked at manufacturing options in Southeast Asia. Uh, right now we are considering because it's not an easy move that to change all the manufacturing facility to another country. But we are investigating uh, this. So it could be a, a potential area for the new manufacturing base. That theme of the difficulty in shifting supply chains is a recurring one. I actually met an international yo-yo superstar at the toy fair. His name is Hans van den Elzen, and he's also president of a yo-yo maker called Yo-Yo Factory. Their high-end yo-yos can fetch up to $300. I travel the world, I teach children how to play yo-yo. I'm a professional yo-yo instructor. I've been in the Guinness Book three times. Van den Elzen creates and designs his products in Arizona. But the yo-yo factory itself is actually in Shenzhen. I asked him if he's considering moving his manufacturing base somewhere else. I want you to imagine a scenario where you're making a product and you constantly have to uh, oversee the production and make sure that everything's being made correctly and you're very concerned about that. But imagine a scenario where the factory is actually selling the product and helping you distribute it. And in my case, I make yo-yos. So if the children in China are directly communicating back to the factory and they're complaining, hey, there's a problem, the factory is already on top of any problems that are happening. And so I get the benefit of, of that scenario where the quality control is happening right there in China. Um, and the factory is actually telling me when there's problems rather than me chasing the factory. And of course, I couldn't help but ask him to demo a yo-yo. So this is like a very professional yo-yo. It sells for $25 per hand. And when I say per hand, we actually play with yo-yos, two yo-yos, you know, one in each hand. Sometimes the yo-yos actually spin off the string. Okay, so you can play on string, off string, you can play with two yo-yos. 
You could say the yo-yo is a metaphor for what these manufacturers have been through in the past two years, swinging repeatedly between tariff threats and hopes of trade peace. On top of that, the protests in Hong Kong show little sign of fading. It all adds up to a less certain future for Hong Kong's unique status as a critical economic link between China and the rest of the world. Here's the Lowy Institute's Ben Bland again. People are less confident about investing in the future because the political relationship is so important to Hong Kong's future. It has long been this bridge, as I was saying, between China and the outside world. And in a different, happier time, that was a great advantage. But now, partly because of the domestic tensions and partly because of the outside environment, the US-China tensions, being stuck between um, the US and China, between the rest of the world and China, doesn't necessarily look that advantageous. For Bloomberg News, I'm Enda Curran. The economics of the yo-yo there from Enda Curran. I wonder how many of you saw that metaphor coming down the track a mile off. Now, I mentioned at the start that Enda's piece from the Hong Kong docks was part of a special project we did for Bloomberg Markets magazine chronicling a single day in the life of global trade. And it's well worth a read and so is the guest essay we also have in that special issue on trade by HSBC senior advisor and former chief global economist Stephen King. Now some of you might remember Stephen spoke on our panel at the New Economy Forum in Beijing a few months ago. I wanted to talk here in our last episode of the series of uh, Stephanomics about your essay, Stephen, because it raises, I think, some some really profound questions about the future of the global economy. Thanks for writing it for us. Thanks for being here. We asked a lot of people in this same issue whether they thought we were at peak globalisation. Lots of important things. You're not engaging with that directly in this piece, but you do have sombre things to say about the direction that globalisation might be heading in. Do you want to give us a very quick summary and then we can get into some of the what lies underneath it? Yes, of course. So uh, globalisation is something which I think 10, 15 years ago people thought would just naturally advance uh, through technological change of one sort or another. We've become ever more integrated over periods of time. Uh, but history suggests that there are different kinds of globalisation. Uh, the kind we've been living through over the last few decades is all about building global supply chains, about uh, connecting countries and industries more closely around the world than might have been the case in the past. If you go back to the 19th century, you find a very different version of globalisation, which was really associated with, it's a horrible word to use, but the agglomeration of activity. So factories all being built in, say, the UK or in parts of Germany or France. Um, And the economies of scale that these factories gained were such that it put industry out of business in countries like India and China. So what you saw in the 19th century was a story of some countries uh, posting significant industrial advance and other countries uh, posting exactly the reverse. They became poorer and poorer. They kind of de-industrialized. They went back to rural poverty in many cases. So India had completely de-industrialized in this period. Absolutely. So you go back to the 18th century, uh, India was one of the dominant producers of textiles around the world. And by around about 1900, it lost that position completely, largely because of the impact of steam and factory technologies being used, particularly, I would say, in England. Um, So the consequence was that even as Europe industrialised, China and India de-industrialised. And in fact, you go back to the, the data, 
uh, late 18th century, China and India together accounted for almost 60% of global manufacturing output. And by 1900, it was down to about 5% or so. And the key to this, I mean, I guess now we want to know, because as you point out, there was that model of globalisation, which kind of increased the gaps between the successful and the unsuccessful parts of the world. And then the more recent period of globalisation, where actually you had... Uh, it was more more equalising. It was more you, yes. know, you were dispersing income across across the world. And of course, you know, people might think that sounds odd because we always talk about rising inequality. But the gap between rich and poor countries has got narrowed, has got smaller. Even though a- the gap between the rich yes. and poor within countries has tended to get bigger. Yes, it's one of the paradoxes of globalisation that uh, the gap between nations has definitely narrowed. It's what happens when you've got China growing at for a while, you know, nine, ten, eleven percent uh, per year. India growing at maybe 6 or 7% a year. When you've got those kinds of growth rates coming through, inevitably you're going to see some kind of convergence of economic activity. But it equally is true that within countries, you've seen this big growth of inequality. And part of that within-country story, I think, might eventually apply across countries too. And the reason for that is that within countries, it's not just about the impact of globalization, shutting down factories and so on. It's also about the impact of technology, that technology through robotics and artificial intelligence and so on has led to a, a huge reduction in the number of people employed in a variety of different industries, in you know, manufacturing most obviously, but also increasingly in clerical jobs and so on. Um, and what happens is these people lose their jobs in those particular industries. They then find new jobs, but often at a lower rate of pay. Um, so you end up with uh, maybe a limited number of people who are you know, the Facebook founders or the WhatsApp founders or whatever, who do incredibly well. But at the same time, there's large numbers of people who have been, in one sense, left behind. I think what is true uh, within countries may begin to also apply uh, across countries too because of the impact of robotics uh, in reversing global supply chains. So we might now go to a point where there's more, it's winners and losers across the global economy rather than, I mean, the great justification uh, and the case for globalisation in the last 20 years has been the kind of convergence we were talking yes. about, the good story. You know, Absolutely. the X million people who've been lifted out of poverty is always the sort of number one part of the justification or the, yes. the pros of, of globalisation. If we are, if, te- if the technology we're seeing now is going to shift us more back to that 19th century pattern that you were talking about, where that success is sort of concentrated in different parts of the world. Of course, the winners, the winning places are not necessarily going to be the same as they were in the 19th century. No, quite possibly not. I mean, you'd certainly argue perhaps that you know, parts of North America and Europe would still emerge as, as winners in the story. It also add, I think, countries like China that would emerge as winners from the story. Uh, but there are countries and regions around the world that have not really properly engaged with global supply chains as yet, are kind of queuing up to get to be part of that story. Uh, but arguably, um, they're not going to get there because um, if you're a company thinking of investing internationally, you might choose to invest in a country that itself is quite risky. We might instead decide that you can do the same thing at home using robots and AI rather than cheap workers abroad. Um, if you think about late 20th century globalization, it was very much a story of capital going in search of that nice combination of you know, relatively cheap but productive workers. And that kind of tied the world together more than had been the case previously. But if it turns out that there are even cheaper robots with no, nothing in the way of political risk to employ them, then under those circumstances, it may be that the global supply chains go into reverse. They shrink. They become narrower. And moreover, if countries begin to believe that they can 
it one says break away from globalization, it may be that the kind of rules of the game that we've thought of as being so important over the last few decades, the enthusiasm for those rules begins to break down. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because what what does happen to the flow of trade in this scenario? I mean, we're not, uh, we started when we were thinking about this kind of sense of peak globalization, but I guess what you're describing is it's sort of the end point of globalization is that we all come home or that we all, a lot of the production yes. um, comes home. Does that make these, you know, we're, we're hand-wringing over the future of the World Trade Organization and the, the weakening effect of things like the US-China trade war. Does Does technology make those things less important or more important? Well, I think technology... It, potentially is a way of hastening the reversal of globalization. That If you happen to be a rich country endowed with large amounts of domestic savings that you can use to invest in, in robots and AI at home, then in those circumstances, you could do that without having to worry about building those global supply chains. But I guess the flip side is if you have, and as I suppose also did happen in the 1800s and early 1900s, if you have a slower flow of goods and services in this environment, you might once again have greater flows of labour. And as the subtitle of your essay is the the uh, rise of the robot, the march of the migrants. Yes. Do you think that is the other side of this story? I, I think it's quite possible. So you know, one of the huge um, challenges really for the global economy and indeed for global governance in the next few decades is the extraordinary demographic changes that are taking place. It's not just about ageing populations and shrinking populations. It, parts of developed Asia and parts of Europe and so on. It is also about the enormous growth uh, through baby boomer effects of populations in sub-Saharan Africa and also in the Middle East. Now, if it turns out that global supply chains go into reverse and people born in these areas feel that somehow um, they just can't get the economic opportunities within their own countries that they perhaps would previously have hoped for, then I think they will go marching. Uh, they will look for opportunities elsewhere. And, and why shouldn't they? Because um, if life is tough in the particular area they happen to be living in, they probably will go on the march. And, and one interesting feature, again, of the 19th century is that in the middle of the 19th century, you had you know, huge flows of people from particularly England and Germany to the US, uh, often because they had very high levels of, of skills in certain areas. Much, uh, much larger as a share of the population than what we've seen a, recently. A, a, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, though, you had a huge number of people going from Ireland to the US for totally different reasons. I mean, these were effectively victims of the potato famine who went in very desperate circumstances. And then a little later in the 19th century, as transportation costs came down dramatically, you had a lot more migrants coming through from southern Europe, from eastern Europe, who typically were poorer than the people living at that stage in the US, who in many cases were accused of undercutting the wages of those who, who were already there. Um, so the, the, if you like, the, the type of migrant changed uh, from being highly skilled in many ways to being people who uh, often came from poorer, uh, less educated backgrounds. Um, and of course, that created its own separate set of pressures within the countries to which they were heading. Um, so when we look at what's happening currently in terms of the flow of people, let's say, across the Mediterranean to Europe from Africa or from the Middle East, uh, you begin to think the same kind of uh, theme might begin to emerge in a much bigger way in decades to come. One thing I've always liked about you, uh, Stephen, in a world of uh, economists who are constantly being asked to look ahead and make forecasts, you are unapologetic in often looking backwards and looking yes. back into history <laughs> for insight, which I think is quite a good place to look. Um, Stephen King, thank you very much. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. This is the end of the current series, I'm sorry to say, but I promised we'll be back in early April. And if I do anything really exciting, you may find a few bonus episodes popping up on the Stephanomics feed before then. You can always see the latest news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics on the Bloomberg News website or by following at Economics on Twitter. You should especially check out our stories for that special issue of Bloomberg Markets magazine on trade. The Hong Kong story in this episode was reported and written by Ender Curran. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Lucy Meakin and Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Stephen King, Tyler Cowan and Carter Woolley. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Thank you.